right. We can turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. for us 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 2 and 3 to the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ both their Lord and ours grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ last week we began our look at the call upon our lives as Christians. And we broke that down into the general call and the effectual call. And we said that they were basically um, different kinds of uh, calls upon our lives. There's the general call of salvation that goes out to all. And we talked about the Corinthian uh, church being probably in one of the most wickedest cities of its day. And we said, if anyone needed to hear that God's salvation reaches and God's grace reaches to the uttermost, it was the Corinthian people. Because most of them came from a pagan background. Most of them came from a licentious background. Just the city itself was filled with evilness and debauchery and wickedness. And to be saved in a city like that truly showed you that God had to do something in an individual's lives. We cannot save ourselves. And Paul used himself as, as an example of God's call upon his life. Remember when Paul was Saul, he was persecuting the church. He murdered Christians out of diligence for his own religion, and God converted him. And it's a wonderful thing to see how someone like that could be converted by the grace of God. Someone who's actually persecuting the very church that now he preaches the message of the gospel to. What a wonderful conversion. And then he brought up our brother Sothenes and we mentioned how he was part of the leadership of the synagogue in Corinth. So he was steeped in Judaism, and yet God clearly changed his heart. And then he brings up the idea that even the Corinthians, they were called by God. They were called saints. And the Corinthians were saints because God called them to be saints. He Paul wasn't saying, oh, you're saintly. <laughs> you know, it's one thing to say, oh, that person's just saintly. They do nothing wrong. That's not what Paul was saying. Paul was saying, you're a saint because God called you a saint. And we looked at the various mentions throughout the epistles of that word called. And wherever it's used in an epistle outside of the gospel, whenever you see the word called in relationship to salvation, it's talking about not the general call, to salvation. It's talking about the effectual call. And we talked a little bit about last week the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. We mentioned that 
you know, foreknowledge, predestination, election, that's all something God's, God does in eternity past. And then we said the effectual call that we're going to talk about today, or regeneration, the new birth, the idea that you actually are raised from the deadness of your sins into new life in Christ, that's the effectual call, and the conversion and justification and adoption, the idea that he places you into his kingdom, we mentioned all those happen simultaneously at salvation. And then we mentioned the process of sanctification and perseverance. The idea that once God effectually calls you, once you are saved, once you become a Christian, there's no way that God is not going to make you more like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You will become more like Christ. And so a lot of times I run into people who profess Christ and they say, yeah, I, I'm really struggling in my Christian walk. I just don't see any change at all. My words to them is also you need to go back and you need to examine your salvation experience. Because if there's no change, there's probably no Christ. And if there's no Christ, there's no salvation. And so... Christianity isn't something we just put on and pretend and, and just say, well, I, I believe in Jesus, I guess that saves me. No, you should see God effectually save you. You should see changes in your life that are dynamic and demonstrative. That's what we see in the New Testament. And that's that process of sanctification. That's that process that, that we call perseverance, where God keeps us in Christ. Isn't it a glorious truth, brothers and sisters, that when we are called to be his children and we come to Christ and we repent of our sins and by faith we trust in Christ, nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for the saint who is in Christ Jesus. Not a little bit, none. Absolutely none. I heard someone say, in relationship to perseverance, the idea that, you know, you, once you're saved, God keeps you saved by his grace. We don't have to keep ourselves saved. We couldn't keep ourselves saved if it was up to us. We'd be lost the moment after we got saved. But God is the God who keeps us saved. And I heard someone say this in relationship to Noah in the ark. They said when God put Noah in the ark, when he was in that ark, he may have fallen down inside the ark, but he didn't fall out of the ark. (laughs) See, that speaks of our security in Christ. That speaks of that perseverance. The idea that, that once you come to Christ and he raises you from the deadness of your sins and you become a new creature in Christ, there's no going back. Now, we all know people who've made a profession of faith who've, quote, come to Christ. Maybe they raised a hand in a meeting. Maybe they walked down an aisle. Maybe they prayed a prayer. And we look at all those things and we say, well, I guess they're saved. But we don't see any change in their life. And then pretty soon they're back in the world. They're doing things in the world and they don't even come to church anymore. And so you say, well, what about that kind of person? You know, we've all probably even discipled people for a period of time in our lives and only to see them fall away fall back into their patterns of sin and their love for sin and their 
their hatred of Christ. And you say, well, weren't they a Christian? I discipled that person. Well, let me tell you, they may have been your disciple, but they definitely weren't Christ's disciple. And it's very important that we understand that. And that's where the gospel, when it comes into someone's life, it transforms them. And then the last thing we spoke of was the glorification, ultimately, when Christ returns, when we receive our resurrected resurrected body, our glorified body. So there are basically three calls of Scripture. There's the general call. We talked about that last week, and we'll finish that up today, which is the proclamation of the gospel. It's called the external call of the gospel. And then there's the effectual call or the internal call. That's God's sovereign drawing of a sinner to salvation. That's where regeneration happens. That's where new birth happens. That's where old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And then there's also the call of the sinner back to God to be saved. We can't forget that, right? I mean, we have to remember that the Bible says that, you know, if you call upon the Lord... If you repent of your sins, you'll be saved. So there's that call as well. And so we we looked at Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so every time in the New Testament epistles where that word called is used in reference to salvation... In every case, it's always referring, referring to the call we're going to talk about today, the effectual call. And you say, why is that important? Because in the Gospels, it speaks of a different call. It speaks of the, the external call, the general call, the Gospel call. It refers to the verbal proclamation of the Gospel. The internal call is given only to the elect and always, always brings that sinner to salvation. But the external call is given to all people without distinction. And oftentimes, the external call is rejected. You can think of it as as the call of a human and the call of God, or the call of the pastor and the divine call. You know, we may preach the gospel, but just because we preach the gospel doesn't mean people are going to get saved. God has to do that redemptive work in their hearts. That's why the external call is not in the order of salvation. Because it doesn't necessarily lead to salvation. It can. You have to have the external call. We talked about this last week as well in Romans chapter 10. Where it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, how will then they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how will they hear if someone isn't preaching? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the what? The word of Christ. And I mentioned this to you last week that today our churches are full of stories of people who say, wow, yeah, somebody just woke up. They never even heard the gospel, and now they're saved. That flies in the face of what we're reading here in Romans 10. And so you have to pick and choose what you're going to believe. Are you going to believe somebody's experience? Are you going to believe God's word? 
Paul says right here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that there's no way they can hear. If they don't hear the gospel, they're not going to believe. And if they don't believe, they're not going to be saved. It indicates that the proclaiming of the message of the gospel is absolutely imperative. And so when you go to Romans 1 and you see the natural revelation of God in creation, we mentioned last week that that is not enough to save somebody. To go out and look at the Grand Canyon and go, wow, there must be a God up there. That's not going to give them everything they need to know to be saved. Or you go to the the Grand Tetons or you go somewhere else and you look at the grandeur of, of God's creation. That may push you in the right direction. Well, there must be something out there. But if you stop and think about it, if you don't believe that the preaching of the gospel is a necessity for people to be saved, why in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus Christ himself, why would he waste his time? Why would he waste his words? Why would he tell us to do something that we don't, it's not important. When he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. All right, the Great Commission. Why would Jesus give us that? If eh, They don't need even to hear the gospel. So there's a necessity of the gospel being preached. And we talked about the elements of the external call. God's holiness, man's sinfulness, the work of Christ, that's the first thing. You have to have that if you're going to preach the gospel. You have, people have to understand that God is holy, man is not, man is sinful, and that Christ has come to be our sin bearer. To pave the way for us to have a relationship with God, to reconcile that relationship that was breached by our sin between us and God. And then secondly, you have to give people an earnest call to repent and believe. Jesus did this. John the Baptist did that. The the apostles, the disciples, they all did that. It's not good enough just to say, well, you know, if God chose him, I guess he'll just be saved. No, we have to preach the gospel in its entirety, God's holiness, man's sinfulness, the work of Christ. But then we have to go out and we have to give people an earnest call for the sinner to repent. And we talked about how the gospel is not just a suggestion, it's a command. Believe the gospel. Come to Christ. Look to Christ. If you don't obey that command, you will be lost in your sins forever. And then the third thing we said as far as the elements of the external call is the promise of forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And so all those things are elements of the gospel. And then we said... And we, we kind of breeze through this, and so I, I just kind of want to make up where I, I left off last week, the characteristics of the external call. Uh, the, the external call to salvation is the presentation of the gospel, and it's marked by a couple different key characteristics. First of all, it's a general or a universal call. It's a call to everyone. The good news of repentance and faith for the forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed throughout the world without discrimination. We need to preach this message to everybody. 
Now, this differs really with the internal call of regeneration. That's given by God only to the elect. Because they're the only ones that will be saved. The external call of the gospel is to be preached indiscriminately to the elect and the non-elect as well. That's what we're called to do. Now, some people who get a little crazy in their doctrine of election, uh, they, they look at God's absolute sovereignty, which we attest to, we believe that, and we say that somehow this contradicts the teaching of preaching this universal call to everyone. Um, we ought to preach the, the gospel only to the elect. Well, the problem with that is we don't know who the elect are and who they aren't. Right? That's why God says, just go out and preach it. Just go out and preach the gospel to everyone. We can't distinguish those whom God has set aside for salvation and whom he has not. Um, and so God, in his sincerity, in his earnestness, he desires that the wicked should repent. We see that throughout Scripture. In Isaiah 55, verses 1, 1 and 3, it says, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and, and milk without money and without price. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. This is God speaking to everyone. He entreats the sinner to seek him. Um, he's eager to have compassion on them and to forgive them. That's what he tells us in Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7. And he says in, in Isaiah 45, verse 22, he, without discrimination, he commands all the ends of the earth are to turn to him and be saved. Now, our theology teaches that, well, not everybody is going to be saved. We understand that. But we can't logically make those two things come together because God's ways are not our ways. Um, if it was the case that the gospel preachers should limit the external call only to the elect, if that's what some people believe, and they do believe that, you would find an example of that in the, in the life of Christ, in his ministry. He was here on earth. He was around sinners all the time. The only difference with God, with Christ, was he was God. And he knew who was elect and who wasn't. But guess what? Did he preach just to the elect? No. He didn't. He continuously preached the general call of salvation. He uses it in parables in Matthew 22, verses 2 to 14, talking about the parable of the wedding feast. In uh, inviting everyone who was weary to find rest in him. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 27 to 30, he says, Come to me all, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That was a general call to everyone. And when he goes, and as I mentioned earlier, to go and make disciples of all nations, 
to preach the gospel in Mark 16, 15 to every creature. Uh, We need to make sure that we are abiding by that. Even Paul declared to the philosophers on Mars Hill that God commands all people everywhere to repent in Acts 17. So the universality of the gospel cannot be denied. The second characteristic of the external call, before we get to the internal call, is that it's a bona fide, sincere offer. And by that I mean, in our logic, we say, okay, so you're saying God elected some to be saved, and yet he demands us to preach the gospel to everyone, and yet only a segment of them, people who hear the gospel being preached to them, those who are elect, are the ones who will respond affirmatively and be saved. So how can the offer to everyone be legitimate? Isn't this a shell game, some people say? That it can't be genuine on God's part. Now, when you stop and you ask that question, the question itself is the answer. The idea that God could not be genuine flies in the very face of who God is. God is holy. He's perfect. He's set apart above all others. Just because we can't comprehend that his offer to everyone is sincere, even though only some of them are going to be saved. Even though we can't logically comprehend that, that doesn't mean that it's an issue for God. God truly does call all to repentance, and he represents himself as sincerely desiring the repentance of the wicked. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23, he says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? And not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Or Psalm 81, verse 13, Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. He's grieved that they're not doing that. In Romans 10, 21, All day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now, we don't understand how the statements of compassion toward the non-elect can be reconciled with the, the doctrine of divine election and redemption. It doesn't leave us to conclude that God does not mean what he says. (laughs) Burkhoff, a wonderful theologian, says this, the external calling is a calling in good faith, a calling that is seriously meant. It is not an invitation coupled with the hope that it will not be accepted. When God calls the sinner to accept Christ by faith, he earnestly desires this. And when he promises those who repent and believe eternal life, his promise is dependable. This flows, follows from the very nature, from the veracity of God. He even says it would be blasphemous to think that God would be guilty of equivocation or deception. That he would say one thing and mean another. That he would earnestly plead with a sinner to repent and believe unto salvation and at the same time not desire it in any sense of the word. In Romans 9.18, Paul writes, It's God who has mercy on whom he wills. It's God who hardens whomever he wills. It's the God 
This God who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That's hard for us to comprehend. But it is a genuine offer for salvation. To suggest that that God's offer is insincere because he does not provide the necessary grace to overcome man's depravity and to suppose that God is obligated to give grace to all. You know, Jesus himself responds to this in Matthew 20, verse 15. He says, Am I not... Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? That's what, who we belong to. As the church, we belong to him. In Romans 9.21, he talks about the potter having the right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. We have to understand, God is not obliged to give grace to any man. None of us deserves the grace of God. Let alone to every man, to all men. See, the deficiency in the gospel call lies in man's depravity, not in God's grace. It's on our side. It's not on God's side. And then the last thing last week that we covered was that the external call itself is not efficacious. Some of you came up and said, well, what did you mean by that? Well, unlike the effectual call in which the man is summoned irresistibly to spiritual life, God commands the dead man in his sin to come alive, and he does. That's what salvation is. The external call can be resisted. We see that all the time. Just go out and preach the gospel on the street corner. You'll see people walk by, make fun of you. They don't want to hear it. They're resisting the call of the gospel. They're being disobedient to the command to believe on Christ and repent of their sins. Jesus makes this distinction in his conclusion to the parable of the wedding Banquet, remember in Matthew chapter 22, verse 14, where he says, many are called, but what? Few are chosen. See, this is why we have to make a distinguishment between this word called here in the Gospels and called in the epistles. When we get to the epistles, the word called in reference to salvation always refers to the effectual call. The call of God's divine salvation upon a a human soul. But in the Gospels, there's a general call that goes out. The Gospel is preached to many. But out of that many, there's only a few who may be chosen. Many are invited to partake of the feast and the blessings of eternal life. Yet, because the Father has only chosen some and not all, few are effectually called. The effectual call, basically... We'll get into this a little bit later, but the eternal call, or the external call, excuse me, the general call to salvation is not efficacious. It doesn't save anybody. It's only God that saves the human heart. Because you can reject the external call, you cannot reject the internal call of God upon your life. In John chapter 3, verse 18, it says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But who 
whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. In John chapter 6, verse 64, he said, But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who uh, those were who did not believe in who it was who would betray him, speaking of Judas. And so, even though the external call goes out and people hear it, it's not sufficient to save them. The only way that they will be saved is if God affects the internal call upon their life. So let's look at the effectual call today. The effectual call. And because of the deficiencies of the external call, we're giving it, humans, um, sinners stand in need of a sovereign, efficacious call to overcome the effects of depravity and to bring them to repentance, to bring them to saving faith. That's why we don't just wake up one day and go, yeah, you know, I think I'll just get saved today. (laughs) I think I'll just trust Christ for forgiveness of my sins. No, that doesn't just happen that way. You hear the gospel and probably you reject the gospel for a while or maybe you think about the gospel and then one day your eyes are gloriously opened. That is the effectual call. That is the internal call. That is regeneration. That is new birth. It's spoken of in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Because in our natural state, man is characterized by what? By spiritual death. We're dead spiritually. That's what he says in verse 1, chapter 2, Ephesians. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Well, what does that mean? Well, if you do an extensive study in the Greek language, that word dead means dead. That's what it means. You don't need to be a Greek scholar to figure that out. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. By nature, you were a spiritual corpse. You're entirely unresponsive to any spiritual truth whatsoever. When the, when the external call, when the proclamation of the gospel hits your ears, you're just deaf to it. That's why the natural man will always reject the gospel. Always. It tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, why? You say, well, why does the natural man reject the gospel? It tells us, it says, For the things of the Spirit of God are folly to him. He's not able to understand them. Because they are spiritually discerned. It takes the Holy Spirit of God to comprehend the aspects of salvation. Because sin has so invaded and pervaded our our faculties that we're so corrupted by sin, we're spiritually blind. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, Paul says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers, has blinded them. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. They're blinded. You ever put a blind around your eyes and tried to walk around? It's not a whole lot of fun after a while. You run into things. You're disoriented. 
He's spiritually blind. The man outside of Christ is spiritually blind. They can't sit down and look at the gospel and go, oh yeah, this logically makes sense to me. Now I'm going to accept it. They can't do that. They can't even see it. Romans chapter 1. Look over there. This is, this is just a wonderful text on this. Romans 1 verse 21. He says, for although they knew God... In other words, they kind of knew about him because of creation. It wasn't sufficient to save, but they knew about him. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. It has the idea of not able to see, blindedness. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, what they do? They became fools. And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity and went on. It goes downhill from there. But the idea is the fallen man is futile in their thinking. We can't figure this out on our own. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 and 18, Paul says this, Now this I testify in the Lord that you must... No longer, he's talking to Christians, no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. Who are the Gentiles? Those outside of Christ. The natural man. The spiritually dead individuals. Well, how do they walk, Paul? He says, don't walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They can't see. They can't see the gospel. See, when the glory of Christ is presented in the gospel, you have to understand the natural man does not see it. They're not excited to hear it. Why? Because their eyes have been blinded, the Bible says. That's why sometimes, as Christians, we're called to be gracious with such people. You know, sometimes I hear fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, talking about friends or relatives or whatever who maybe they've shared Christ with for years. And they haven't come to Christ yet. And they almost have a chip on their shoulder because they haven't Listen to their counsel and come to Christ. What's wrong with them? I don't know why they don't believe the gospel. Keep on praying for them. They're dead spiritually. They're blind spiritually. That would be like walking into a room where you saw an individual with a cane, a white cane, and dark glasses on, clearly a blind person, and there's one chair, and you're telling the guy, hey, why don't you just sit down? Why don't you just sit down? Well, I don't know where to, I don't know where to sit. Well, it's right there. Can't you see it? He's blind. He can't obey the command. Even though he grapples around. I mean, see, that's, that's what we're dealing with when we go out and we share the gospel. That's why we don't just go out willy-nilly and, you know, hey, let's just go hand out some tracts. We should be in much prayer before we share the gospel. We should be praying that God leads us to people where 
He's working in their hearts. So when they receive that track or they receive our testimony or they receive a scripture, we hear with them, God is, is working in their hearts and in their lives to draw them to Christ because they're not going to see it. They're not only blinded, but Jeremiah 6.10 says they're spiritually deaf. says his ears are uncircumcised. Therefore, he cannot perceive the wisdom, grace, truth announced in the gospel of grace. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. It's also a parallel passage over in Matthew chapter 13. In Isaiah, it says, he said, Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. In Matthew 13, Jesus says, indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that you will indeed hear but never understand and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear. With their, and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Jesus said in John 8, verse 43, why do you not understand what I say? He asked this question. It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. And then he tells them why. Why couldn't they hear the word of God? Why couldn't they hear and understand and perceive what Jesus was saying to them? In verse 44, he's talking to Religious leaders here, by the way, people who were supposed to hear, supposed to see. They had all the accolades of religion placed upon them. In verse 44, he says, because you're of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Can you imagine saying that to a group of religious people? But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Believe me, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. That's, that's Jesus' words himself. We're speaking of the natural man, those outside of Christ. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Remember that the next time you look at somebody and say, Oh, does, he has such a good heart. No, he doesn't. Our hearts are wicked above all things, deceitful, desperately sick. The natural man is devoid of all spiritual life. Ezekiel calls our hearts stone. They're not even flesh. They're hearts of stone, cold. They're unresponsive. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, God gives us the remedy. Paul gives us the remedy. What do you do with someone who is dead in their sins, who's unresponsive to spiritual truth. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 says, But God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. See, Christianity is one of the only religions where you don't have to get cleaned up to come to God. God says, I'll take you just the way you are. I'm going to take care of you. You, don't, you can't do anything. You can't clean yourself up enough for me to like you. Or for you to even be in my presence. Because you can't clean yourself up to perfection. And that's what I demand. That only comes through the new birth. That only comes through being born again. That only comes through coming to Christ. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin. God loved us even when we were dead. What did he do, Paul? It says right there, made us alive together with Christ. God made us alive together with Christ. I mean, we were dead. I mean, count it out. I mean, we're gone. We're, 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 we're dead as a doornail. There's no response coming out of us. But God, by his grace, reaches down and says, yeah, I'll give you a little life. Come to life, my child. And all of a sudden, your eyes are opened. And for the first time, you hear that external call of the gospel and it becomes God's internal call. And God regenerates your heart. He justifies you. He transforms you. He recreates you in a moment in time. And in the exercise of his sovereign pleasure, God if issues you, God issues you the effectual call in your heart. And you're gloriously and wondrously saved. He powerfully summons the sinner out of his spiritual death, out of his spiritual blindness. And by the, the virtue of his creative power of his word, he imparts new spiritual life to him. See, this is why salvation can only come from God. Because God is the only one who can give life. The Bible says when we are saved, we are given a new heart. We're given new eyes, new ears. So that now we can repent. We can change what we used to believe about God. And God gives us the ability. He grants to us, the Bible says, repentance, a change of mind. And we believe in Christ for salvation. That's why Romans 8, verse 30 says, And those whom he predestined, he also called effectually. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also is going to glorify. There's no, there's no question there. Our perseverance in Christ is a secured fact. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to worry. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul says this, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. This is when Paul was in prison. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, 
who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works. Amen? I mean, think if God saved us based on our works. I mean, how much work would we have to do? Could we ever do it? Would we do the work in the right way? What happens when we complete the work? Then we just get lazy and do nothing? I mean, how does that work? (laughs) See, God knew that's not the plan. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and his own grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. See, that talks about God's foreknowledge. That talks about God's predestination, his election. Before the ages began, that was in the heart and plan and purpose of God. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, it says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. See, when God calls us effectually, 1 Peter 2.9 says, he calls us out of the darkness and he calls us into his marvelous light. He calls us to himself, Acts 2.39 says. Verse 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says that he calls us into fellowship with his son. Acts 1.6 says he does that so that they belong to Christ. We are called into his own kingdom and glory. 1 Thessalonians 2.12. See, this is the divine calling. This is the, the internal call. This is the effectual call of Christ. The glorious call of the gospel. The, the miracle of regeneration. The miracle of new birth. Well, where does this come from? Well, you can look at your outline, you see here the author of regeneration. The author of regeneration. God alone is the author of our salvation. Do you understand that? He alone is the architect of our salvation. Our salvation has its origin in none other but God alone. He alone is the source. As a matter of fact, the message of the gospel, when you stop and think about it, just the mere message of the gospel... It's an out-of-this-world message. Think about it. I mean, who would have come up with such a plan? Who would have come up with such a, a way of, of redeeming those who were lost? We could never have come up with it. It's so far removed from our own even ability to understand or to think or to plan or accomplish And God's plan of salvation is so thorough. It's so perfect. 
I mean, think about it. We are saved by God, right? We are saved by God through his grace. We are saved from God. What do you mean? We're saved from God's wrath. We're saved from God's wrath. I think it's up, you can put that up there up on the screen. I think I have a slide for that. We're saved by God's grace. We're saved from God, from his wrath, and we are saved for God. We are saved for his glory and his glory alone. See, the author of this kind of radical change in man's nature, it's, it's unable to come from within ourselves. We can't clean ourselves up well enough. To make this change happen. We can't come to church long enough. To make this change happen. It has to be from the creator of all life. And all life. By the way. Includes eternal life. Because he even created that. It's God alone. God grants us faith. But he does not believe the gospel for us, beloved. We need to believe the gospel of Christ. We need to understand what it means to repent of our sins and turn to Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And when we do that, that's when God does that miraculous work in and of, in and besides ourselves. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul said this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Well, wait a minute. I thought you just said that it was a thing God did on us. He did to us. He saved us. But the Bible does include us in this process. He says, you need to work this thing out. This is part of the sanctifying process. And Paul says in verse 13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 to 8 says this, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's part of our sanctifying process. God expects some effort from us. We don't just get saved and lay back in the armchairs of grace and say, oh, God's got it all figured out. I'm just going to relax here. No. He says you have to, you have to make sure that your, your salvation is sincere. But the work of regeneration, however, is unlike any of these other applications of redemption. In regeneration, man is entirely passive. God is the ultimate sole active agent in bringing about the creative miracle of the new birth. 
That's why we use the word born again. That's why Nicodemus had a hard time understanding what was being said to him. What do you mean you got to be born again? He could not understand it. Stop and think about this. In the physical realm, a child makes absolutely no contribution to his conception or his birth. None. He's entirely dependent on the will of his parents to be brought into being. Before you were born, you didn't say, yeah, it'd be nice to be born on this date. You didn't say that. I'd like to be born to these parents. No. You had no say at all in the matter. And in the same way, Jesus uses that analogy to illustrate the reality that dead and depraved sinners cannot contribute to their rebirth onto spiritual life, but are entirely dependent on the sovereign will of God for regeneration. That's why Jesus, when he talked to Nicodemus, he he told him, you're a man of the Pharisees, you're a ruler of the Jews, you're a teacher of Israel, you don't understand these things? Jesus turned to him and said, what? You must be born again. You must be born again. You must be born from above. John Murray observes this. He says, the wind is not at our beck and call. The wind is not at our beck and call. Neither is the regeneration operation of the Spirit. We are totally at God's mercy. The Apostle John declares that we are children of God, birthed in regeneration. We're not born of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, it says in John 1.13. But of whose will? God's will. Our heritage, our ancestral lineage has no bearing on regeneration. Sometimes you have families that grow up in the church and, you know, they think because they've been Christians for 50, 60 years that little Johnny's a Christian too, just because they're related. Doesn't work that way. Does not work that way. And just like you were not, you had nothing to do with what your heritage would be. You, You didn't choose what line to be born into. Neither is the child of God born of the will of the flesh. A person who is spiritually dead cannot simply just decide to be born again by an exercise of his own will. It doesn't happen that way. They're dead spiritually. No moral effort, no religious activity can induce any kind of new birth. Because Jesus said that flesh can only give birth to flesh. And because the birth we're talking about, the new birth, is a spiritual birth. It can't come from the will of the flesh. It has to be from the will of God. Man is dead in their trespasses and sin. They're utterly helpless to bring themselves to life. That's why the scripture says over and over again, God made us alive in Christ. He brought us out of the deadness of our sin. Colossians 2 
12 to 14, and you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of your trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. According to the Father's great mercy, 1 Peter 1.3 says, He has caused us to be born again. He has caused us to be born again. As we close, I just want you to look back in the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel with me. Ezekiel. And I'll close with this text and we'll finish this up next week. Ezekiel 36. If you want one text that really speaks of God's doing in all of our salvation, the work of salvation, this is, this is a wonderful text to go to. Ezekiel 36, look at, at verse 25. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. Now what you can do for homework is you can take your Bible home and you can underline everywhere you see the word I will in this text. This is through the prophet Ezekiel and God promised a time when he would bring new birth or regeneration to his people. And look at what he says here. Verse uh, 25. He says, I will, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall clean and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rule I mean when you look at that text it's six times if you underline it that statement, God is saying, I will do this, I will do that. I will give you the spiritual heart transplant that you need, and only I can do it. It's not ironic, in the very next chapter, in Ezekiel 37, it talks about the valley of dry bones. Talking about the utter helplessness of Israel, it's speaking of there, to give themselves life. They can't do it. God has to do it for us. I pray that this morning as we sit here that you have been born again. That you have acknowledged Christ as your Lord and Savior. That you have turned from your sin and turned to the Savior. That you have yielded to the effectual call of God upon your life. That you know without a doubt that, yeah, God is doing a work in my life. I see changes constantly, daily. If you don't, then you need to stop and you need to reexamine your salvation experience. Because when God saves someone, he saves them by the power of the gospel. And that gospel is an explosive power in your life. 
that changes you completely, entirely. From being dead in your trespasses and sins, now you're alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us the command to go out and proclaim the gospel to all beings, whether they be in this country or another country, it doesn't matter. Lord, we don't know who the elect is. And so we proclaim the gospel to all without discrimination. Believing that it is the power of the gospel that will change the human heart. When you implement that effectual call, that, that call to salvation that cannot be refused, it cannot be denied. Lord, we thank you for our salvation in Christ. We thank you that it has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with our goodness or our religiousness or anything about us. It has to do with your plan, your choice, your salvation. That you've caused us to be raised up from the deadness of our sins to new life in Christ. For that we're eternally thankful. And Lord, I just pray that if there's any here this morning who is yet to yield their heart, to, to bow their knee to the Savior, that even now, Father, that you would do that work of drawing them, dragging them to the cross. That you would help them understand their need of a Savior, the need of forgiveness of sin. And Father, that you would do that work in a wondrous, wondrous way. We thank you. And we praise you. We pray for our fellowship time across the way that you just bless our time together as the body of Christ. And Lord, if there's anyone here who has questions or needs answers, Lord, I pray that they would seek someone out and and, uh, ask those questions. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.